0: This program is brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu. My name is Christina Gagne and I run a boutique internet law practice based out of Los Angeles and San Francisco, Gagne Margosian. And my article for the Journal of High Technology Law was on privacy, liberty, and the digital revolution. The article is based on the idea that we have a movement that has been going on for probably the past 10 years in regards to personal transparency. A lot of it's been rooted as well in government corporate transparency. At the same time, transparency, in a sense, is also coming about at the individual level with people through tools available via social media like YouTube are making themselves more transparent. They're videotaping parts of their lives and taking them online. They're engaging in activities where they're life-casting all the time and sharing details that. 10 years ago would have been impossible to broadcast at the volume that you're able to broadcast and the capacity you're able to broadcast today. And so this is actually working to erode the right of privacy. A lot of people are familiar with Fourth Amendment privacy through media, especially TV shows covering it like Law and Order. They're very unfamiliar, though, with the right to privacy in the civil sense and sort of what the protections are that exist in the civil sense for people if their privacy is violated. And most of those, as it's rooted in court law, are based off of a reasonable expectation of privacy, which is based off of community norms. And so as it's sort of a community thing and a court has to determine based off of society's view of what the right to privacy should be and what's appropriate or not appropriate, as society sort of engages in these very public exposition activities and life casts, et cetera, they're sort of eroding their right to privacy without really knowing it. And so that's really what the article explores is the various ways in which the right to privacy is being eroded, both through legal mechanisms and through some of the things that individuals are engaging in without really maybe thinking about what the consequences are. Love reality is actually, for anybody who is also a reality television connoisseur, over the last 10 to 15 years, reality television has sort of dominated the TV cycle, and the basis of it was this idea that you're getting an intimate view into someone's life, and it's realistic, and so whether it's a show on VH1 like Flavor of Love, which I'm sure many people have seen but with admit it, or other shows like Big Brother or Survivor or the other things that have come out. This idea that you're getting an intimate view into somebody's life or an intimate view into a situation that you normally wouldn't get. As a consequence, there's a lot of people that are now engaging in activities that are very similar to that. And so I think people have a misconception that because we're exposed to all of this reality television, that their life casting and their activities and sort of their promotion of those activities can be very similar. And so everybody's kind of searching for their 15 minutes of fame. And I think once again, as I've referenced YouTube earlier, that's really enhanced that capability. But one of the articles is, is that as people are themselves becoming celebrities, or it's very easy to become your own little celebrity online. And as we change the definition of celebrity, I think that the idea and the concept of the internet celebrity is really the epitome of this. We're creating a new sliding scale for what a celebrity is. Now, I can relate that to publicity given to a private life. That concept has been around for over a hundred years, and let's say in the 1920s, 1930s, it was really clear who a celebrity was like a screen star or a politician. And so there were these certain categories under which we knew that was a celebrity, that was a public figure. Today, I think it's much less clear who a public figure actually is. And so if we were to apply some of the court protections that do exist in the civil sense for privacy, I think it would be difficult for a court at this point to make a determination of, who's a public figure, who's not a public figure, because so many of us are living in this very open environment, whether we're tweeting all the time and live-casting or doing a series of YouTube videos. I mean, I can think of internet celebrities like I just seen, who sort of gained their popularity through going to the Apple store, engaging in silly videos, and now they have millions of followers online and deals with companies like Mosey in the promotional sense. That wouldn't have been considered a celebrity 10 years ago. So we have a legal system that's pretty far behind in terms of looking at technology and the advances in technology and sort of where society's going with it, and then we have the activities we're engaging in. And so at some point when people start to realize that privacy has been compromised at such a point, I just don't think the legal protections are going to be there to protect people, and I think people are going to be very surprised by that. I think that there is a reasonable expectation for online privacy, and this comes into a couple of areas, one being sort of the expectation that's laid out in terms of use and privacy policies and sort of what those expectations should be, which I'll address in a moment. And then I'll particularly talk about Facebook. In terms of having a reasonable expectation of privacy online, one, there are some tools online that create a sense of community in a very small sense. And so if you're using Google Chat, you have an expectation that it's going to one person. If you are on a platform like Facebook and you've set your privacy controls a certain way, and until Facebook decides otherwise, which is what I'll touch on in a moment, you might say, I have 100 friends on Facebook. I only intended on sharing this with 100 friends. And so you still have an expectation of privacy. I think that the expectation of privacy is going to shift in the next, five or ten years, a lot of people are under the misconception that the millennial generation and the generation behind it don't care about privacy, but we haven't really tested out privacy with that generation as they come of age. I think that people's expectations of privacy and considerations when you're looking for a job or the stakes are much higher in terms of the content you're putting out online and how people are observing it, I think rep- as it relates to privacy is going to become very important. And so I think reputation and concerns about that will drive sort of a resurgence of particularity about privacy. And so I think that expectation will change. But a lot of people do not consume the terms of use on a website. I mean, let's be real. There are a bunch of legalese and 17 pages, and probably someone isn't going to scroll through it and understand it. Part of the issue with Apple several months ago in terms of what they do and don't do in terms of the geolocation features and other things with the iPhone, but there's still rules that are set out on websites. And so if I join a community online, I should be able to see that there's a certain set of rules that I can expect, and I should understand what my control mechanisms are for the information that I provide. And so I think that data control, data portability, data minimization online in terms of personal information, as well as personally identifiable information, will become very important in terms of the reasonable expectation of privacy. Now turning to Facebook, the reason that this debate is focusing so much on Facebook is because they're the 800-pound gorilla at this point. And so whenever I go to conferences or whenever you see a presentation on privacy, Facebook inevitably comes up. That's because, one, I mean, they're managing what now is the equivalent of a country. They have hundreds of millions of users, and they are collecting data that is in some senses, not first identifiable information. I mean, some of it is name and location and things that really are sensitive to people. But a lot of it is creating image online and a lot of it's inferential. And a lot of it can create inferential data information, which I think is scariest. There's been a couple studies over the last few years linking profiles on Facebook and then getting government data and social security numbers and creating this very sensitive information in these profiles of people. So it's not just that the information is being consumed on Facebook, it's that the way that you can link information online, people don't realize what that's going to mean. Second, Facebook has really sort of been the community leader in terms of creating online digital space. Now that my space is sort of, for better or worse, out of the picture in terms of being the viable social network, Facebook is setting rules and setting norms. They are going into a policy arena and they're hiring more lobbyists, they're busting up their D.C. presence. And they're really going to be a large company in terms of shaping policy from a regulatory perspective in DC. I think from international perspective with international organizations as well as with the European Union. So we really have to look at Facebook and see what their reach is. They also have, obviously, the financial resources to combat lawsuits and shape the legal framework. So that's why I think we need to be concerned about Facebook. Second, they set a precedent where a company can change their goals whenever they want. People debate about Facebook and what they've done to change their privacy standards over the last five or six years, but when you play a game, there's rules, and you expect you know the rules, and that's going to happen when you get into it. Facebook is an entertainment tool, most people view it that way, and the rules of the game keep changing. I think that people at some point are going to become fed up with the rules changing and their privacy being violated. And I think other companies can learn from Facebook that there's a way to treat users and a way that don't treat users. And if you want to keep your users on your platform long term, you have to respect the rights and respect the responsibilities you have vis-a-vis users. Chain versus Virgin Mobile is not a very well-known case because it didn't go very far in the court system, but I think it teaches a very good lesson about privacy and the global reach today. The Chain case essentially involved a high school youth group, and the youth pastor took some photos at a car wash. He then posted them on Flickr, which is something that we do every day after we have events in our life. And a company in Australia, I believe it was Virgin Mobile in Australia, found these photos and they wanted to do a campaign for their mobile platform based on this idea that dump your pen pal friends, why don't you get a cell phone? So they found this girl online and basically her face became the face of the campaign of dump your pen pal friends. And so it was a very negative spin on her photo in this Virgin Mobile campaign in Australia and then it was discovered that wait, they were using her face to give a little background legally, you can't just go online, take people's photos for commercial use and use them. And so it was a right of publicity case where her parents brought an action on her behalf because they had taken her photo and used it for commercial use in this campaign. I think we're going to see more and more of that. And I think that's going to be one of the tipping points with privacy and sort of some of the rights that we have online is... People are uploading user-generated content. The rules are not very clear. Creative Commons license structure, although well understood by some on Flickr, is not well understood by others. This youth pastor, for example, never would have probably ventured that that photo would have been used in such a capacity. The beacon issue was actually Facebook advertising mechanism that they launched in 2006 without really letting the feature be known to users ahead of time. And people were really surprised. It basically was a feature where it would advertise based off of your interests, or use the fact that you use a certain product and use your name in the advertising. People really did not like that because the Facebook platform before had just been, it started as a college community platform, and then as the features were growing, it was one way too soon to introduce such a feature into that community. And second, it was just really creepy. I mean, if you're going to a party and you're consuming Doritos, you don't want your face showing up in a Doritos ad on your friend's page. Like, it's just weird. And that's a very benign example of the beacon feature at work. I think that those are both instances of things that people wouldn't have expected in the platforms they were engaging in online, whether it's Twitter or Facebook, and then there were unintended consequences. And as we're using platforms, we have to realize that... There's no U.S. regulatory infrastructure. Most of our privacy laws are siloed in different industries, whether it's HIPAA for the healthcare industry, the government has very stringent data rules and privacy rules for government agencies, and then there's the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act in terms of the way that companies online can interact with children. But there's not a wholesale network law in terms of privacy, and my article came out prior to the regulatory debate really heating up on the issue. But people do need to be aware of that, but this is all corporate-created legal regime at this point, and a lot of it's just based off the idea that the terms of use and the privacy policy are a contract with the user. That theory has been negated by one particular court. I'm forgetting the case, but a couple weeks ago, a judge basically came down on click-through contracts, and so I think there is some precedent that's being set for that not really flying anymore in terms of being legally binding. The Warshak case, I mentioned it very briefly in the article, but it was focused on the idea of our conversations online through email as well as perhaps through G-Chat. There's been a long line of privacy cases, and this is in the Fourth Amendment privacy sense, dealing with telephone conversations or letters being sent and other types of wire communications. Warshak was an extension of that, basically looking at email communications and whether they are entitled to Fourth Amendment privacy protection or things like Gchat and other chat clients, which is really where I see the natural extension going. One place where we expect privacy is in our telephone communications. We expect that when we call one person, it's going to be that person on the other end of the phone, and unless we consent, we don't think someone's going to be recording it or privy to it. Same thing with you know, our email communications, and I would venture to say communications through any chat client or communications even perhaps through Twitter's direct message feature, you know, or even on Facebook, using Facebook messaging features. And so I think that... The law next is going to end up exploring messaging, and when it's direct messaging, and when it's messaging just between one individual to another, and then even perhaps private messaging amongst like a small group, and sort of what the rights to privacy in that are. And that's going to be critical, considering that other types of communication are dying off very slowly. Text messaging, I think, is something that's really popping up right now in the Fourth Amendment privacy space, content on mobile phones. And so I think war tracks can have implications very quickly on those types of communication. So essentially, throughout the entire article, I was discussing sort of the trade-offs between this very public lifestyle that many of us are approaching versus sort of the way that we used to have to interact was a lot of our life was largely private. And that was just because we didn't have mediums that existed to make things so public. But there are trade-offs to everything. And I think that that's sort of what the gist of the article is, is that there are these trade-offs we have to make and these decisions that we're going to have to make in terms of privacy. And I don't think people understand that the more transparent you are, even though I think that there are some authors that have come out and talked about all these promises of transparency. And I'm certainly not going to sit here and say that government transparency and some of the open government initiatives that have happened aren't positive, but it's not a free lunch in the sense that there are trade-offs. And the big thing with the right to know, and this is sort of the way I conclude the article, is that it can go so far and people don't realize that. So we really want to know everyone's business. We're caught up in knowing one to everything about celebrities and every detail of their life. If I hear one more thing about Kim Kardashian's divorce personally, My head might explode. That's just an example of we discuss things about people and know things about people that maybe we just shouldn't know. And maybe there does seem to be a line that's drawn. So I think that, you know, sort of the takeaway is that we have to find this appropriate balance and probably sooner rather than later. This preceding program was brought to you by Suffolk University please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu.